And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Hey everybody, welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. This month's episode is actually going to be a kind of a deep dive into a bunch of weird stuff. Um, and I only say weird because it's it's different than some of our normal fare here on the podcast, but it's going to be kind of looking at some of the things that we found when we're digging through various archives or different repositories, you know, places where they got a bunch of old letters uh, from just whoever's been writing into the uh, administrators or the leadership. Uh, it's it's going to be the kind of stuff that as researchers, Michael and I have had a chance to see over the years, but haven't always made it directly into, you know, one of our official papers or conference presentations. Uh, it's the kind of thing that you see and you're going through a folder of different papers and it catches your eye, but you don't really know what to do with it. I call this episode today the Tales from the Z File. Okay, hey listeners, we are diving right into this particular episode, and this is kind of one of my uh, personal pet projects, but um, I'm going to actually take on uh, kind of the role of the one being interviewed by my <laughs> buddy Michael here, and i uh, going to kind of pass the baton over there, even though I could talk all day, yeah, but it's just easier sometimes to listen if it has a nice back and forth, so the official status of interviewer is going to go over <laughs> to Michael here. Michael, it is all you, man. All right. Well, just welcome back to the Adventist History Podcast. And part of delving into our past is finding primary source documents. And you do that by going to archives, searching through old attics. You just never know what you're going to find and discover. So it's part of that quest, that search for uh, research material. And of course, if, if you're into Adventist history, one of the best places to go is the General Conference Archives at the mm-hmm. World Church Headquarters in Silver Spring, Maryland. So uh, I'm excited because uh, Greg's going to share a little bit about some of his uh, discoveries. So, uh, Greg, tell us, uh, you, you've got four documents for us tonight. Yep. And uh, walk us, start walking us through your first one. Sure. Um, yeah, let me, I'll just give a typical or at least a quick uh, background to it. I was at the GC working on some totally different research uh, looking up some old guys, Wilkinson and Washburn, you know, early 1900s, 1920s. And I was just digging around, seeing what was there on them. But when you're in the W section, um, everything's obviously alphabetical. And I also kept bumping into what's called the Z files. And the Mm -hmm. Z files, typically, you know, like you just have everything that they don't know where to put goes there. Because Z (laughs) doesn't get a whole lot of stuff anyway, because there's not that many people's name that starts with Z. So it kind of becomes the de facto dumping spot. Miscellaneous, right? (laughs) Right, right, exactly. So this is some of the stuff that I started kind of, I was going past it. And every once in a while, things would kind of jump out at me as I was digging for other stuff. So yeah, um, this first letter is actually from a mother whose daughter had gotten ill. And this is to Elder O.A. Olson from about 1891. And she's writing from Spring Arbor, Michigan. Uh, and she's writing to Olson, who is a general conference uh, elder leader uh, at this point in time. And she's she's telling him her story about her daughter who got sick. Uh, they thought she was not going to make it for a long time. And part of the sickness, I guess, was that her eyes uh, almost developed like a film, she called it. 
And after she got better, her eyesight was never the same. And she actually goes on to say how she seemed um, like she was good, except she could no longer see. She was blind. And it seems like she's a pretty young child still at this point. Um, and she's kind of just telling Olsen all about this. And then she makes the next jump. And this one was kind of surprising to me because uh, she says, you know, I, I do not read anywhere in the Bible that God has ever sent the blind away saying that is his will that they should remain blind. He always was so willing, she says, to help all who came to him. So in her next sentence, she says, I would like you, Elder Olson, to lay your hands on my little child and pray for her, uh, for her healing. And if it is God's will that she may receive her sight, I believe these signs and wonders underlined shall follow those that believe and my prayers have been answered so many other times. I know this is going to work. Uh, and I found that one to be kind of interesting because, you know, typically, even as a pastor, when people come to me and say, hey, can we pray for somebody? Um, can we come and do an anointing? You know, it's it's almost one of those without it being a real last rite. It, it feels that way, you know, and as a pastor, it's you just kind of know things aren't going well and they want to make this final attempt. Um, but this lady doesn't act like that. She's looking at this and saying, I believe this can happen and I believe miracles will happen. And you, uh, the GC leader, you seem to have a better connection. Come in and lay your hands on my daughter. Uh, and, and and that was a powerful, at least a powerful idea, because we don't necessarily always, you know, kind of act that way. Um, even in our own church interactions today, there's not that confidence uh, that I found kind of interesting and kind of inspiring, actually. Well, cool. And so after this letter from this mother writing to the church president at that time, Olson, uh, you have a letter uh, in connection to uh, a minister uh, or from a minister. What, what Also, I think, to O.A. Olson, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, you know, I think this one's to someone else. I want to say it's Elder Bowen. Uh, it's about okay. 20 years on down the road, okay. uh, 1921. And so this letter particularly... <clears throat> doesn't move into uh, the realm of healing, but it's much more of what can we do for mm. our students. It's actually, it seems to be oh. either a principal or okay. uh, somebody else like that. So, uh, and it's specifically an international student problem that they're having. So this particular one is talking about the school, uh, like I said, 1921, and they're writing specifically to say that they have two international students, brothers, from uh, Honduras, and one of them's name is Hector, uh, and then the other one I think is Sam. And Hector, while he was there at school, got acquainted with one of the girls that lived there. Uh, they really started to kind of connect, and she was a nice girl. But through some of the relatives, it seems that Hector um, wanted to step out of the school setting. He felt too restricted, uh, and he kept talking about how the school was holding him back. He could get a better job and make a lot of money, and he wanted to just get out of the system. Um, and then eventually, I guess he almost runs away from the school. His brother stays behind. They're trying to work with him, but eventually his brother also takes off. Um, and he's actually writing saying, what can we do for these boys? Um, how do I talk to the parents who sent them to the States from Honduras? Um, and ultimately, um, he's, he starts kind of getting a little bit confused about how they should proceed in the future. Should our, our international students best served by coming to the United States um, to, for their schooling, or should they perhaps go into some other place? He actually recommends perhaps that they can go to a school that's in Panama. Um, yeah, and yeah. and being being you know an international student and professor yourself, 
Um, I'd, I'd love to hear some of your own feedback on this. How, how do you hear his concerns uh, through uh, international eyes? Yeah, I mean, this is the question I, as I'm looking at the document, Southern Junior College. So the letter is actually by Lynn H. Wood. And anyone that's been at Southern knows that that's the oldest building still on campus. And so he was kind of the president and or principal, I guess we'd say, of, of the school. And as, you know, looking at this here, I mean, this is always the challenge, right, is uh, there's two challenges. One is children going off to school and then those that are trying to find their own way that they that path may not be within the church, you know, and going through kind of a rebellious phase, which is obviously what's going on here. That can happen in any time or place, and that that doesn't necessarily have anything to to do per se with culture. Uh, but then there is another aspect of you know, is it possible that sometimes uh, people in that cross cultural experience that they can go through trauma or shock? that ends up being so overwhelming or traumatic that then that kind of can be a tipping point that, um, so that, that always is a question. Um, and whether it's best to keep somebody in their own cultural context or to go into another cross-cultural context, it, it really depends on the, on the person and each individual situation. So, I mean, having worked in cross-cultural places, uh, myself, uh, that's never an easy thing to, to figure out. Um, mm. Because sometimes it works really, really well, and other times it doesn't, and that can doesn't necessarily always have have anything to do with the uh, the cross cultural thing per se. But obviously, that just contributes. It's one factor in many factors that uh, with with education of young people, it's complex, right? Yeah, uh, it, it's never just a black and white kind of thing. And and I guess this shows that over a hundred years ago. Um, some of the same kinds of issues. And I think that's just because education is about relationships. It's about people. Yeah. And that means just life is messy, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I find it interesting that he's writing for help. You know, honestly, he's looking to the GC and yeah. saying, hey, you know, what do we, what should we do? Uh, he says, at the end of his letter, he says, we, we do all we can for these boys. Uh, you can tell the father, you know, that we're still going to work for them. Um, and do everything we can to kind of track down Hector. But he said, you know, the customs here are strange for them and the appeal of the world is too <laughs> strong, which, you know, wow. I, I thought that's an interesting thing to admit. Like yeah, we can't, sure. you know, we can't fight against the appeal of coming to America and seeing all these opportunities and all of these economic um, benefits that they could get. Yeah. Uh, we can't we can't compete. And that's some of that kind of uh, the, the draw of affluence and cultural respectability, um, those kinds of things, as, as, as you know, that can be a drawing factor and, and definitely can be very distracting, I guess you'd say, is, is maybe the best way. And, and, you know, this this is a reality too. you send your young person to another country. And if it's a wealthier country, um, you're right, it, it can be sometimes very difficult to get them to return to that home country. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, and the church has had to grapple with that in many different ways over over our past. Yeah. And, and that's it's just interesting to see that this this is a, this issue hasn't gone away. It's yeah, definitely. But, still part of it. By the way, talking about issues that haven't gone away, uh, mm -hmm. credentials and licenses. I think that's your next document. <laughs> it, it is actually. This is one that definitely hasn't gone away and has, if, if nothing else, grown in intensity. Um, this third letter that I kind of stumbled on uh, was written, I think, around 1891. 
uh, from Battle Creek, actually. And this one, again, is to O.A. Olson. Uh, and he's writing, this is a, a pastor who's writing and talking to the elder, the GC representative, making a request. And the, the request is interesting because uh, he kind of starts out this way. He says, Dear Brother, does not the General Conference Committee grant missionary license to some persons? Now, my wife is out on the field to work. She has been laboring in Kansas about five weeks, attending the camp meetings and visiting the churches, working in the interests of the health and temperance work, teaching healthful cookery, uh, dietetics, dietetics, yeah, social purity, et cetera, et cetera. And she expects to do considerable of that hard, uh, that work in the future. And he goes on and just kind of tries to kind of paint the picture of, I have a wife, she's working with me side by side. Uh, in the coming years, she wants to continue to do that. And he says, of course, she has a medical missionary license from the, and I'm not sure, the H&T Association, or maybe it's the Inter... Health and Temperance Association. There you go. Thank you for that. Um, But he says that does not help much in getting RR permits. And I had to look at that and think about it for a second. But I realized... Railroad. Yeah. Railroad permits, right? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I've heard this come up in other letters uh, as I scoured through there. The railroads typically would give a clergy discount. Uh, ah, yes. for specific travel rates, you know, and you could mm-hmm. get, you know, 50% off a ticket if you're going for religious mm-hmm. or church functions. Um, and he's looking and saying, this is a significant expense um, for both of us to travel in service of the church and doing all these things that, you know, are helping everybody. Could we get a missionary license for it? Yeah. Because the railroad company isn't going to recognize the discount for us at all. Yeah. Well, interesting. And I love that this is written by W.H. Wakeham. Uh, who later will become significant uh, because he's one of the more vocal individuals at the 1919 Bible Conference. So mm-hmm. just a little tie-in there that's kind of fun. Yeah. And he, he's he's being respectful. And I like how the tone of the letter goes. But then he says in the end, now if it is thought proper by the committee, could you not issue her a missionary license so that uh, permits could be more readily obtained? Give this matter your, your immediate attention, kindly, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's it's a fascinating move, and I think in yeah. 1891, this is very close to the discussion that has already been at the general conference level about women uh, and the work in the ministry and different parts of that. Um, for to me, I found it interesting that he's appealing to precedent. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't just come out and say, "Hey, my wife should get a, a, a license." He says, "Isn't it already common that we give out missionary licenses in many cases uh, for people who may not be, you know." formally trained in ministry, but are still doing the work of a missionary. Uh, he, right. he approaches it, you know, kind of from the slant, but still it's a, it's a time when ministers were still primarily, you know, there was no travel allowance uh, per se mm. as part of their, their regular right. uh, pay, you know, so it's, yeah, mm-hmm. he's, he's making a definite appeal there. So um, to me, I thought that one was interesting. Like you said, Wakeham figures up uh, pretty prominently later on in the church. He's not going anywhere, uh, right. but, but he's, He's still pushing, pushing a little bit, asking for, hey, let's let's consider, let's let's keep talking, um, and that I I avoid normative statements sometimes, you know, as a historian, I want to just be descriptive or I want to be, you know, as unbiased as possible. But right. the, the the discussion here seems seems relevant to our current day discussion. Absolutely. Now, tell me something, you know, I I just want to talk about the research process that goes in behind this, you know, um, uh, I think a lot of people think, well, just everything must be digitized, just search for it on the internet. And, and yet, Mm -hmm. here here you are working through these archival collections with, uh, 
thousands, maybe millions of pages of, mm -hmm. of records, of correspondence, all these different kinds of things. Uh, what made you, I just want to back up for a second. You know, what made you want to go there and, and, and tell me why that process is so important to you, Greg? I mean, you're, you're in the middle of a doctoral program. Yeah. So talk to me about this for just a second. I want to just back up for a second and, and talk about this. Sure. To me, uh, archival work, I mean, just from the, the, the real practical side of it, it's impossible to scan everything. Yeah, Dig digital archiving is very much advanced from what it used to be. Um, they have big machines that can crank through and put a lot of stuff into the archives. But the fact of the matter is there is still a ton of stuff that has not and is not going to be digitally uh, scanned in for a long time. And for me as a researcher, um, I think there's probably a dual thing. I'm, I'm motivated to dive into the archives and open the boxes and see the stuff. One, because I feel like there's stuff in there that we don't know about, and it is exciting to make, you know, interesting finds and the serendipitous moments, you know, uh, I think there's stuff in there that we just, nobody's looked at it since it was put in there. So right. there's an appeal to find new things, right? But two, I, I think even in my own doctoral work, I, I feel like it's really important for us to start looking at the voices around some of the big name voices. Okay. You know, uh, and it's, it's in the historian uh, terms, you're looking at the story of the common people in this time mm -hmm. and around these stories. Um, you're, you're giving voice to those who otherwise don't have a preserved voice in the discussion. And I think if I'm going to do good historical research, um, their voices are part of the contextual tapestry that the big stories are, have to be understood against. Otherwise, so they're isolated. If I'm hearing you right, Greg, so part of what the goal is, is not just to kind of find the powerful voices of the top leaders of the denomination, although those voices are important to understand, but kind of the rank and file, like what was it like to be an Adventist uh, a century ago? Am I hearing you yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. If you were just a regular church member and mm -hmm. you had seen these guys in, in a meeting or at a camp meeting, how did you experience them? What was your life as an Adventist like? Uh, yeah. And I don't, and I think we're going to miss that tableau of people if we aren't diving into these archives, because frankly, you know, Wakeham's letter or this letter from the mother, uh, the sister in Christ, uh, Mrs. H.C. Wolf, they're not going to ever be heard from if yeah. we're not in there digging around for it. Mm -hmm. And it also gives me a flavor of what, of what I think ministry looked like for the leaders, yeah. you know? Um, as a church worker myself for 20 some years, um, I, I know what it's like in the trenches. I've been in mm -hmm. churches in the three church districts and, and I've worked yeah. in a lot of different settings. I know what it looks like in the 20th, 21st century, but I don't know what it looked like hundred years ago. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, I find connection with these folks and I also find commonality. Um, yeah. So it kind of helps me, helps me realize that uh, the work that we do is actually part of a much longer tradition and uh, common common themes seem to come up. Yeah. By the way, I want to give a, a shout out to our friends, uh, especially David Trim, who's mm -hmm. the director of the General Conference Archives, the Department of Archives, and I think Statistics and Research, and and also Ashley Chisholm. Uh, I was at say, Ashley I've been big. there. She's <laughs> the one that's always pulling the files, right? And, yep. and uh, so I just want to say a big thank you to them uh, for all the work they do for Adventist historians to help 
make research like this possible. One more question is we may have some listeners and say, you know what, I'm just dying out I, to do research. I can't wait to, to <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to go get my car and drive to Silver Spring and show up there next week. Um, tell me, what was it like? I mean, can you just walk up or what was the process to, no. to get signed up for that? <laughs> you, you, you definitely have a fairly strong process. Okay. I wouldn't say it's vetting, but it's sort of vetting, you know, like they want to know, like, are you connected to somebody official? Yeah. Are you coming from a conference? So they want to make sure like legitimate, right? Right. They're going to say, what are your credentials? And yeah. that's not unheard of. I mean, I don't want anybody to hear me say, you know, we're locking it down and they have they have things to hide up there. So they're putting this huge. Th no, every archive wants to know who are you? Where are you from? And then, then they start asking the bigger questions. What's your goal here? What are you looking for? What are you uh -huh. planning to do with the material you find? Are you going to publish it? Are you going to take pictures of it? You know, yeah. like they're, they're, the, the process was fairly extensive. I mean, it was like four documents that I needed to fill out. I had to get a recommendation from my conference official to say, hey, yeah, he's a legit guy. He's not going to do anything crazy with this stuff. Um, <laughs> the reality is, is that people have walked into the archives and walked out with stuff. You know, that's true. This, this mean, is one of the problems. This is why archives exist is to preserve this, but we don't want people actually going in and, and stealing stuff or destroying it. Yeah. I mean, there's, we have famous cases. I mean, we talked about yeah. um, Margaret Rowan not too long ago and some other people in the right. past that yeah. have taken or have put things into the archives, you know, uh, to, to make forgeries and say, Hey, look, see, yeah, it's crazy, but it's true. And and I'll just put it, uh, just say this for our listeners that may not be as familiar. I've been to archives that are far more stringent in terms of mm -hmm. going through a much more um, vigorous uh, vetting process. So yeah. uh, actually, I, I commend the GC archives for doing that. I think that's great that they do yeah. that. But I just want to sensitize that because someone may not know, and and so they're <laughs> like, you know, I really, I really love this. I I want to be a professional historian or whatever. Mm -hmm. or I want to do kind of up my game and do more serious research, you do have to go through a process. I just want to make sure our listeners are aware that that those kinds of things happen, um, that that's just a normal thing. And, uh, you know, a lot of archives, you have to wear even like archival gloves, you know, yep. uh, because they don't want you to get oils from your hands on these documents. And uh, one more thing, um, and I, I want to hear your last document here that I think is just um, uh, really phenomenal. Um, the documents that that because you shared, you know, some some scans, so I could kind of see this uh, in preparation for this episode, right? And um, some of this, you know, it's all handwritten, um, mm -hmm. so that handwriting, and even as we're talking back and forth, trying to the T and M tracked in, or, or what was it, the health and temperance, uh, the yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, we're trying to figure out the letters there as we're looking at it. Um, sometimes the handwriting is difficult to read, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, talk to me about that. I, I have always, uh, that to me is the perennial struggle uh, when mm -hmm. I do enter the archives. There's a lot of handwritten stuff and yeah. not everybody's handwriting is as good as another person's, you know. Um, there's, so it goes a little slower than sometimes you'd wish. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was reading the letter from the mother, I have to look close because she she's writing quick and a lot of her words she'll either shorten or she'll put a hyphen halfway through them and jump to the next line. Um, the style of writing was different. It was taught different back then, right. you know, the handwriting and everything, people did it more, but they also took a lot of shortcuts that just aren't readily common in, as I'm reading through a document. So I'm like, Whoa, wait, what is she saying there? Um, mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, it's always a little bit of a struggle. I love it when I find somebody who has amazing penmanship 
because I can just almost read it straight through. Uh, but then there's the other people you're like, woo, a handwriting analyst would have a heyday with you. Um, <laughs> and I always find that to be fascinating, you know, but it's, it's definitely a little bit of a, a challenge. Uh, I like it. I, it feels like I'm in touch with the person a little bit more. You know, you can kind of get a sense of what they're like as they're speed writing through something or if they're meticulous and tiny in their writing. Yeah, it just it tells you a little bit about them. It's a it's a tangible way of touching the past, I think. I always love seeing their signature at the end, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. How yeah. is it a doctor scrawl or is it, you know, like something that's beautiful yeah. scripted? Yeah. Oh, one one other thing that's intrigued me is that sometimes people use different inks, even even typed pages, which are much faster to read. But depending mm-hmm. on the ink that people used and the kind of paper, I've seen lots of documents that are literally fading off the page and you have to use mm-hmm. like ultraviolet light, uh, different kinds of things to try to just pick up on that little bit of whatever yeah. that's left uh, to be able to discern you know, what's, what's actually there. Well, I guess we could talk about a lot of those kinds of things, but hopefully that tantalizes our listeners a little bit about uh, the historical process. You know, I I think the best research is when it's done, you know, or what we call original research. It's not just kind of borrowing what other people have said about it, but actually finding those, like you said, those original voices. uh, I think that gives agency to the past, trying to hear uh, what people were actually saying. And when you do that original research, you, you always discover new things. That's, that's part of the fun, uh, of, of, of his, you know, doing history. Uh, and now we come back to this last document. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it has something to do with EJ Wagner. It does. It does. It's probably one of my favorite ones. Um, I found a couple of, couple of documents by Wagner. Um, just like I said, I was into the W's. I was already looking at, uh, Wilkinson and Washburn from, you know, the 1920s and 30s, and obviously Wagner would come up right around there. So anytime I saw an E.J. Wagner letter, I was like, hey, I should zip this one out because right. <laughs> uh, for our listeners, you know, like the the Jones and Wagner duo from the 1800s and 1880s specifically, that was a big deal. These guys were well-known church leaders, theologians. Um, back in the 1880s, they were kind of the up-and-coming theologians for the next generation of Adventism. So there was a lot of stuff that's already out there on these guys. Um, And this is letters from Wagner written around 1903 when he was still over in uh, the UK, actually, serving as an editor for the Present Truth magazine and uh, just outside of London. Actually, no, it's in London, uh, Holloway Road, London. So, yeah, this first one, uh, first, I had two of them, but this is the one I wanted to focus. The letter here is written to Brother Daniels, um, and we're going to assume that that is A.G. Daniels. Uh, Looking a little bit closer at this one, he's basically writing and saying, you know, hey, brother, I've got your letters here. I wanted to uh, briefly reply to both of them. Um, And and the process, when we have to think about it, I am stuck in a world where email is instantaneous, right? And people get my message and we can talk about it 10 seconds later. That's not the case when most of these letters are being written. They're either going on steamers Maybe if it's short enough, they'll put it up on, you know, a, a telegram, a wired telegram, so it might electronically transfer. But they're not writing full letters that way. That's way too expensive. So they may collect two or three letters from someone and then get around to writing them back. And that, that letter is going to take weeks, you know, sometimes to get back overseas, especially. So Daniels uh, is being written to here by Wagner a couple of letters late. And he just starts talking about stuff. And he's talking about, you know, the general conference. And he's wondering if he should come out for that one. And then he starts to kind of get into some interesting stuff here because he brings up 
a particular uh, pastor that was starting to do some work and starting to preach about uh, some things that were a little bit contested and some things that he wasn't so sure about. And then he kind of starts going and and it's it's funny in the letter, he's got pretty wide spacing between the lines in the first half of the letter. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden he shrinks that so that he can type more. And you can almost you get a sense like he's like, OK, I'm just going to unleash and I'm just going to blast through this because he has more typos and his letters are all smashed together. Uh, yeah. And as a as a typewriter, you know, you got to change the settings on there because you're like, all right, I'm going to blast this thing out. So I almost like see Wagner like hunched over the typewriter, just tapping away at this stuff. And he's, yeah. he's he's passionate in the letter. He starts talking about how he thinks the clergy these days are not being trained in the Bible like they should. Wow. And and that's an interesting, at least for him as an editor and a preacher, an interesting statement uh, because he's talking specifically about a person, but he then just kind of expands on it and says, the guy that's preaching here is in a bad position because he's arguing for a certain idea, but his Bible verses and the support and the arguments are not that good. He's yeah. not supporting his his belief very well. And Wagner is kind of saying, like, this is a bigger problem. A lot of the pastors I'm seeing don't know how to handle the Bible. Mm. And and he, he kind of goes on here. He says um, there is a this this one brother is a type of hundreds of others, he says, uh, and even scores of those who are in the ministry. They've heard preaching and they've heard Bible readings and they've seen some of these things clearly and have commenced to keep the Sabbath. You know, they've been convicted. Great. And he says of the general claims, they're convinced, but they probably couldn't really master the argument, he says, because there's a lot of other things out there that they've never read. And he's like, they are going out and with this basic set of here's why we believe in the Sabbath. Here's 10 verses that tell me it should be on Saturday. He says they are jumping from that to the pulpit. And now they're out there preaching this truth. And he said not not to 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 temper their missionary zeal. But frankly, they are putting themselves out there without really knowing the argument well enough. They've got a list of verses and some proof texts that, frankly, aren't going to sustain them when someone else comes up with some text they haven't considered. Yeah. And and he kind of just starts going off like that and saying it's not fair for us to send these guys out there like that. Um, yeah. They they are they're honest and they're they're wanting to do something great. But we are sending them out. And he says they don't truly know their Bibles. Um, wow. And he's like, even though they can throw a bunch of verses around, he's like, I know the Bible well enough to know that the more one becomes familiar with any portion of it, the more he will become conscious that it contains so much for him to actually know. He says, but what I mean is that we've got to have the text of the scripture as the subject in our command. We've got to know this thing backwards and forwards. And he said, these guys don't. Um, When you really are looking at how we're educating and sending them out there, They've got a list of texts and they haven't considered it well enough to defend it. And he says, in the end, we are putting them at risk of losing their faith because wow. we we are making them feel like this is the best arguments we have. And he's like, it's not true. There's there, there's more. There's better. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a powerful letter. Um, and honestly, I feel like he could be talking today in a lot of cases. Um, you know, I've, I've met a lot of people who who have a list of proof texts that want to think that this is what the Bible has to say, and that's it. That's it's it's an obvious argument, and everybody who reads this will be convinced because it's so obvious. And I'm like, mm, there's more there, and there's a lot more 
people have a lot of ideas. They've argued about this for centuries. This 10 lists of text isn't necessarily the end all of our arguments. But, but how do you do that? And I, and I think that's a question I'd throw back at you, uh, Michael. What, how do we convince people in an evangelistic setting that here's our truths and here's our beliefs in a simple enough way, you know, that it's clear to anybody who's attending, but then tell them later on, oh, hey, by the way, we've got a lot more that you need to know before you can really like, that's, that's a hard sell. You know, it feels like, uh, we just said it was so clear, but now we're saying, well, there's nuance and there's extra and there's context, you know, that's a hard balance to strike. What, how, how do you feel like Wagner's advice or his critique uh, lands on us today? Well, I, I think some things are, you know, still true that ministerial education, of course, we didn't have any formal ministerial education at that point. We had these little Bible institutes, you know, that, that up until the mid 20th century, as the church began to develop, actually, you know, having formal theological education. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but coming back to, you know, I, I think really it's, it's down to how do you do evangelism, right? I think mm -hmm. that's really the crux of the matter here. Uh, you want to introduce people to the basics, but not overwhelm them in finding that balance. Uh, I think if if people find that you didn't really, if you were kind of like a bait and switch kind of thing, uh, mm -hmm. you'll lose credibility. So that's why I think, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people that are, you know, as, as I've read about the development of ministerial education in the church to make sure that pastors are making credible kinds of claims, you know, not mm -hmm. just claiming conspiracy theories, all of this kind of stuff. And that yeah. takes that takes time. Uh, but if, if people see that you're genuine and authentic, you're approaching it from scripture, um, I, I think all of our Christian experience, not just Adventism, uh, is, you know, to an extent that there are the basics that are simple, that are clear, what we call the perspicuity of scripture, right? Mm -hmm, uh, the mm -hmm. clarity of scripture. But yet there are things that are incredibly um, in depth and that we'll be studying through all eternity, the plan of salvation, the Trinity. Right. And yeah. so if people see that they're not, you know, opposed from one another, it's not a bait and switch. But this is uh, it is clear. But yes, there is depth. And, and that's what makes Adventism great is this idea of present truth, that there's always going to be more to learn and to search and discover it doesn't mean the existing truths go away. It just means that our experience matures and deepens over time. So that's kind of yeah. how I see it, at least. I, I don't know what, what you think, but... Um... I, yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's important. I agree with you completely that, you know, we have certain core truths that are clear and are simple enough to explain to anybody. Um, but I think the idea of new light, you know, and you're kind of quoting a, an Ellen White theme there of, the spirit will lead us into greater truth and greater depths yeah. of those truths. Uh, I think we Precisely. have to we have to teach the people that we're teaching that we're presenting an idea that has much more to it, and yeah. to tell them, hey, here's the Sabbath, here it is in its simple form, but there is a lot more that the, that God can still teach us. Um, yeah. We we never teach the the preamble to the twenty eight fundamental beliefs very strongly, right? You know, that these truths that we have are currently our understanding, but we believe the Holy Spirit can lead us into more understanding later on. And we will amend these truths as the Spirit leads. Yeah, that I, preamble is probably the most important part of the 20 fundamental is. beliefs, in my opinion. It is to me, too. It, it makes me OK with having any sort of a dogmatic stance on something because it, tell, it says God is is allowed to to change the, the reasoning on this. 
I don't think God changes truth, but I think he can yeah. advance our understanding of it. Uh, this this quote out of the letter here from uh, stands out to me big time. Wagner says, um, he says, where is it right here? It says, we have always prided ourselves. Uh, there it is. We have always prided ourselves on our superior Bible knowledge, he says. As a people, Seventh-day Adventist, he's talking. He says, this has always been uh, not because we knew so much, but because other people knew so little. And he says, and worst of all, ministers have been content with that fact. They have seemed to think that it's not necessary for one to know too much in order to teach ignorant people. You, of course, he says to Daniels, know better. Your boy may not know how to read, but when you send him to school, you will not be content with a second-rate teacher. Uh, that that idea right there is we should never be preparing our arguments for the least common denominator, right? We should not exactly. be content to feel like, well, even though I can't answer a bunch of these questions, I don't have to because anybody that I'm going to teach is obviously not going to know near as much as this. So it's not important. Frankly, frankly, that to me is a short-sighted view of our missionary role in the world. If yeah. we are going to stand up and say, here's our beliefs, and say that once you believe these, that's sufficient, you're done, get in the tank. I'm saying we're not doing anything for these people afterwards. We have decided that the explanations we give them on these core beliefs are enough, and that forever after and here on, that should be enough to, to contain their interests and their, their questioning spirit. Like, I've always found people that come to our evangelistic meetings are there because they want to know more about the Bible. Yeah. And if we finish talking about it by the end of the meetings, and then we're like, well, that's all we got. You know, there's nothing else to talk about. Ah, good grief. We're, these people are super excited about learning more about the Bible. We should be instilling in them the idea that there's more to the Sabbath. There's more to the Trinity. There's more to all of these great things that make Adventists Adventists. If we're peoples of the book, we should be peoples of the book all the way through. And I think... It sounds like we need discipleship here. <laughs> right? Discipleship in a... In a an exegetical way, you know, yeah. right? I, there's I, there's depth to the Adventist message and what we're all yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. If you're excited it. about the Bible, we have more to teach you. This is just the first taste. That's that's what I hear Wagner saying. And for ministers to get too content with the simple answer because they can beat, uh, you know, the the, the Sunday keeping preacher down the road in their argument. That's not a, that's not what we're here to do. That's not even the big goal. It's to, to instill in people a passion to keep studying and keep finding more. And there's no simple answers, not only to our beliefs, but also to our history, our past. Yeah. And these yeah. four documents are illuminating, showing some of the complexity uh, that is there uh, from different perspectives that challenge us and challenge us to see in uh, greater clarity uh, the past from a variety of different perspectives, from uh, influential church leader like Wagner to this mother asking for uh, Olson to pray for mm -hmm. the healing of, of her daughter. And it provides just nuance and shows some of the complexity uh, that exists in the past. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great way to kind of wrap up this episode. I want to give our listeners a little sneak preview. Uh, the next couple of episodes, we've got uh, Don McAdams, will be sharing, I mean, one of the pioneer Adventist historians in the 1970s that just did some really significant uh, historiographical work. So mm. we'll hear a little bit more from his story. And then we also have Christy, Christy Chow, who just published a book with the University of Notre Dame Press 
on Adventism in China. So nice. uh, two stellar interviews coming up around the corner. So I want to invite our listeners to keep tuning in every month as we continue uh, discovering our Adventist past. And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. The Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast is part of the Adventist History Podcast Network. You can find other podcasts as well as additional content from this podcast by following us on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like to support this show or others on the Adventist History Podcast Network, please visit patreon.com slash Adventist History Podcast. Enjoy the show.